Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. Before we start today's podcast, I just have a quick advertisement for an important opportunity for Canadian cow-calf producers to participate in a research project that's going to take place over the next few years. The Canadian Cow-Calf Health and Productivity Enhancement Network is looking for cow-calf herds across Canada. This project is quite related to our previous cow-calf surveillance network project that we've talked about previously in the podcast and is coordinated by my colleague Dr. Cheryl Waldner. They're hoping to develop performance benchmarks and best management practices to meet the specific needs of different types of cow-calf operations in Canada. They're looking for commercial and seed stock cow-calf herds that have at least 30 calving cows to participate And you just have to keep basic production records, have access to email, and a relationship with your local veterinarian. They're going to collect production records and have the participating producers answer a survey or two every year on different management practices. And there'll probably be some biological samples eventually collected by your local veterinarian. You can contact Jace Fawson, who's the project coordinator. His email is c3h.pen at usask U-S-A-S-K, dot C-A. or you can phone them at 306-966-7870 that's 306-966-7870 if you're interested in participating and he can give you more details or answer your questions this week on my podcast I'm pleased to welcome back Jennifer Hayden who's a livestock extension specialist with the Ministry of Agriculture here in Saskatchewan Jennifer's got a wealth of practical experience dealing with forages and rations for producers and today she's going to help us learn about nitrate toxicity and how to deal with forages that might be high in nitrates. Let's get started. Hi Jennifer, thanks for joining me on the podcast again. It's uh, been a while since you were last on the podcast and maybe I'll get you to Start by introducing yourself again to the audience and tell us a little bit about your background and what you do in your job at the Ministry of Agriculture. Thanks, John. I'm excited to be back again. Uh, Just a little bit about myself. I grew up on a mixed farm in East Central Alberta. I obtained both my BSc in agriculture and a master's in beef cattle genomics from the U of A. In 2009, I moved my young family to Northwest Saskatchewan and began working with the Ministry of Agriculture. In my current position as a livestock and feed extension specialist, my role is to act as a source of information for producers and the agriculture industry on things like livestock nutrition, uh, utilization of feed and forage resources, livestock production and management, And that might mean phone calls, office visits, farm calls, Uh, being in the business of extension. Our group also attends and hosts various events to provide information to our producers. And we have 10 of these regional offices throughout the province. So we're well positioned to assist uh, livestock producers in Saskatchewan. Yes, they're a great resource for the producers and for veterinarians as well. We utilize your services a lot. So today I'm suffering from a little bit of the agribition flu. We were both at agribition last week, our big uh, agricultural fair and show here in Saskatchewan in Regina. And uh, obviously there were some bugs going around in the children's area where I was helping out and I'm hopefully I can get through today's uh, podcast. Today we want to talk about nitrate toxicity 
And it's a topic that often gets brought up around this time of year from cow-calf producers as they start to transition into winter feeding strategies. Let's start by figuring out what types of forages or feeds we need to be concerned about regarding nitrate levels. So probably number one would be those annual forage crops. They tend to accumulate greater amounts of nitrates than our perennial forages. And some of this is just because of the way they're managed. They tend to be planted on well-fertilized land. They're often harvested at an earlier stage of development uh, compared to those perennials. So we're thinking, you know, things like those small grain cereal crops, oats, barley, wheat, triticale, rye, the whole whole cereal grain family. Uh, Corn also can accumulate nitrate. Canola plants and other brassicas, so your mustard, radish, turnip, kale, those things are often utilized in some of the polycrops or cover crops that that producers are using. Flax, beet tops, uh, sorghum and sorghum sudan grass hybrids. And then we also have weeds that tend to accumulate nitrate as well. So kochia, lamb's quarters, pigweed, thistle, just to name a few. For the most part, legumes such as alfalfa, sanfoin, your sicer milk vetch, and clover tend not to accumulate nitrates. So the nodules on the roots of those legumes do a great job of hoarding that nitrogen and releasing it to the plant as needed. Um, But we do have to be careful with those crops if they've been recently fertilized or plants that are immature, because then we can have some nitrate risk there with those, those legumes. We've had a fair bit of drought in various areas of Western Canada and uh, even in parts of Eastern Canada as well. Why do we have higher levels of concern during growing seasons when we experience drought conditions regarding nitrates? So any type of stress event can cause nitrate accumulation in plants. We often, you know, things like hail and frost, nitrate comes to mind right away. But I think we kind of forget about nitrate when it comes to drought. We don't necessarily consider that that lack of moisture as a stress, but it certainly is. So anything that that causes that plant to be stressed will result in those nitrate accumulations. And we need to, so we just need to think about any situation that causes a disruption in the normal growing cycle or any event that might cause damage, whereby those plants are going to try and repair themselves afterwards. And that's sort of where we see the the issue present itself. Well, there are nitrates usually present in lots of plants and ruminants can deal with certain levels of them. So lots of feeds have some levels of nitrates present, as you've talked about. Those nitrates are usually dealt with by the bacteria in the room. And what do they do to the nitrates when they're exposed to them? So under normal uh, circumstances, those rumen microbes are going to convert that nitrate into nitrite. So nitrite is toxic to the animal. But under normal circumstances, that nitrite is then converted to ammonia. Ammonia is absorbed in the bloodstream, eventually excreted, in the urine as urea. So we typically don't have to worry about it. It's a natural cycle that that happens. That toxicity occurs when we have a surplus of nitrate. So then those rumen microbes can't keep up. We end up with a, a surplus of nitrite as well. And the nitrate and the nitrite that are not being converted to ammonia just begin to build up in the bloodstream. 
So why do those nitrates cause toxicity? What do they do? So that nitrite is going to bind with hemoglobin, produces a new molecule called methemoglobin. So typically, hemoglobin carries oxygen to blood tissues or body tissues, uh, whereas methemoglobin cannot do that. So we reduce that carrying capacity of those red blood cells. And basically, those body tissues then are suffocating because of a lack of oxygen. Right. So that's part of the red blood cell. Hemoglobin's in there. It gets converted to this new molecule. And now the red blood cells can't carry oxygen. And the animal right. basically starts to suffocate almost. So what sort of clinical signs do we see when we have acute nitrate toxicity? Maybe we've started to feed some feeds high in nitrates. The animal's not used to them. Uh, what might we see? Right. So with that acute toxicity, often those symptoms are going to occur rapidly after ingesting that toxic dose. So we might notice that the mucous membranes are sort of a bluish gray instead of pink. So think about the inside of the mouth, under the eyelids, around the nose. Now that's going to depend on the color of cattle, right? So, you know, pink nose, it's easier to tell those types of things. Blood, if you happen to notice it or if those animals have gone down, uh, has sort of a characteristic chocolate brown color. If we happen to catch, you know, we happen to catch those animals after they've ingested that dose and they've not gone down, we might see that staggering weakness or difficulty walking, some of those muscle tremors, increased heart rate, which is maybe hard to see. But one of the things that we might see would be that respiratory distress. Um, animals that are down or sudden death as well. Often we come upon these things too late. The other thing that we might notice, whereas if they've sort of seem to, let's say, recover from that from that toxic or from that dose, I guess, is abortions. So 10 to 14 days after that acute exposure. But it's also important to note that those abortions can occur with chronic toxicity as well depending on the timing of the exposure. So in late gestation, when oxygen requirements of the fetus are higher, we want to work to reduce sort of that nitrate concentration in the diet versus mid-gestation when they can handle a bit more. So those, those abortions can happen early on. They can also happen later on, just depending on, on nitrate exposure. Have you seen very much nitrate toxicity yourself, Jennifer? I got a admit that I have not seen a lot of these cases myself. No, not a lot. Um, and often we've, you know, we would find out about them when we're working with a veterinarian. So that that's one of the great things about that relationship is that we can kind of work with each other. So sometimes, you know, producers might phone and they have some issues. Um, obviously that, you know, or maybe a vet has been out and they see see these things or that's that's what we come to. And then that's that's sort of the point where maybe we do some feed testing and determine whether or not that's act, the actual cause. But I think there's probably some of these two that go undiagnosed as well. Yeah, probably the predominant sign is sudden death. And, and at postmortem, we're not going to find a lot wrong with the animal because it's basically the tissues have suffocated. Right. So we might see that chocolate brown color of the blood or the gray blue mucous membranes, but uh, yeah, it's kind of tough to diagnose even at postmortem too. 
if we did get there and occasionally we find animals alive, can we treat it? Is there anything the veterinarian can do? So with respect to that acute toxicity, where, like I said, we're often, and you mentioned too, we're often too late to intervene or those animals are found dead. There is a treatment using methylene blue solution that can be given intravenously. It's not something that every vet carries in their truck. Um, we also have to consider the time that it takes a vet to get to the farm. So if we've got downed animals, you know what, maybe they're just, there may not be time for a vet to get there with necessary treatment. We also have to consider safety when handling those animals. Yes, and we can certainly push those animals right over the edge pretty quickly if we tried to move them or do something like that. Let's talk about preventing this because that's obviously what we'd like to do. It's tough to treat. They're usually sudden deaths and there's not much we can do. How do we feed test for nitrates? What do we have to do if we want to figure out if we have high nitrate levels in our feeds? So we can, let's look at that feed stack and it's going to depend a little bit on the type of feed that we're utilizing. So whether it's a baled forage versus a standing forage, uh, regardless, we want to collect a representative sample of the forage that we need tested. For baled forages, that probably means that we're going to use a, a hay probe or a bale probe. We're going to sample about 10 to 20% of that bale stack. Standing forages, we're going to clip at the height that the cattle would graze. And we're going to collect a number of samples throughout the field. We don't want to collect them all from one spot. Um, we want to make sure that, that what we've collected is representative. And then we want to look for a lab that's going to report nitrates quantitatively. So either as a percentage or as parts per million. Some labs will do a qualitative analysis, so they'll give you either a positive negative result or a yes, no result, but a qualitative test will give you no insight as to how the forage could be used if it does come back positive, at least with the quantitative test, because you have a percentage or you have a specific amount you know, you can make a judgment and hopefully build a ration where you can actually utilize that feed. So we've got a report back from the lab. How do we know if we need to be concerned about the <laughs> nitrate levels? When do we decide if they're high or not? Right. That's a good, that's a good question. And the other thing too, is that labs report those nitrates in a variety of ways. So some labs will report as nitrate, either as a percent or parts per million, some labs are going to report as nitrate nitrogen in a percent or parts per million, and others will report as potassium nitrate, and again, in either a percentage or parts per million. And because of that, we do need to be careful in that interpretation. Each of those nitrate concentration tests also have different safe values associated with them just because of the type of, of nitrate that it's looking at, which makes it really, you know, confusing to understand and remember what's what. So we'll discuss each of these, but what I would encourage you to do is if you've done a, a nitrate test, just reach out to an extension spe specialist, depending on your location, or a local nutritionist or veterinarian for some help. Um, sometimes, depending on the lab, they may have some notes at the end of the feed test that'll help to explain that, that nitrate result, but that's not true of all labs. Not all of them will include that in there. So the other thing that we need to take into consideration is that when we get that feed analysis back, we are always looking at the dry matter column. 
uh, for that nitrate value. So we'll have an, an as-fed or an as-received column and a dry matter column, and we want to look at that dry matter concentration. So as a general rule, when we talk about forages um, containing 5,000 parts per million or 0.5% nitrate on a dry matter basis, that would be considered safe. Anything, you know, 0.5% or less. So that's equivalent to about, so just over 8,000 parts per million or 0.8% potassium nitrate and just over 1,100 parts per million or 0.1% nitrate nitrogen. So that's where it gets confusing. We've got three different numbers, three different types of, of nitrate that's being considered. So if we just speak to nitrate, um, forage that contains 5,000 to 10,000 parts per million or that 0.5 to 1% nitrate on a dry matter basis would be considered potentially toxic especially if it's the only feed that's being provided. Okay, well, that's good advice. And I think uh, Saskatchewan Agriculture has a nice little uh, brochure online about looking at those different levels of nitrates. I'll maybe put a link to that in the show notes because I, I always get confused <laughs> by that. I always have to look them up and remember which kind yeah. of nitrates are being done. If we did have higher levels of nitrates above those sort of cut points that you mentioned, what can we do? Especially we've got years where we don't have a lot of other options for feed. Can we still use those higher nitrate feeds and not have toxicity occur? So first of all, I think we need to know quantitatively what we're dealing with. So what level of nitrate is present in the forage? Those high nitrate feeds can be mixed off with other risk-free or low-risk forages to dilute the overall level of nitrate that's present. So yes, we, we can use them. We just have to manage them properly. We also need to make sure that we've got sufficient energy or starch in the diet. So adding grain to the ration will reduce the risk. Um, typically, we'll recommend, you know, three to four pounds of, of grain. We also want to make sure that we have adequate levels of vitamin A in the ration. So, you know, we have all of these interactions that occur um, in terms of vitamins and minerals. And it's it's really important that we're on, you know, we're kind of at our A game when it comes to those types of things. So the other consideration would be use of a mineral supplement that's got adequate levels of trace minerals or at least a trace mineral salt that, you know, those, those things are essential because we need that copper and manganese in order for that nitrate degradation cycle and that balance. We also need to have some control over the amount of that feed that's being used and how it's being fed out. So can it be fed as part of a TMR or total mixed ration? Uh, do you have capacity to process the forage in some way to help control that intake? Because what we don't want is to just put, you know, a bale of a bale of high nitrate feed and a bale of low risk feed out because you know, we're sure to have some animals that are just going to consume that high nitrate feed. So do we have some way, you know, to sort of, you know, mix, mix those feeds together so that somebody's not getting that, that toxic dose. And in many cases, it is possible for cattle and other ruminants to build up a tolerance or acclimate to that higher level of nitrate over time. But that gradual adaptation is key uh, if we're talking pregnant cows, we can probably, we can go up to about 1% in the total ration, 
but that's following an adjustment period. And we need to do that slowly. And then we need to reduce that back down to that 0.5% once those cows are in their last trimester. And we kind of talked about that earlier in the podcast where we can we can push that level a little bit higher in mid-gestation when oxygen needs for the fetus are lower. But we we bring that back down in that last trimester when that that fetus, you know, grows exponentially and also has higher oxygen requirements. So we've seen that in a number of situations where people can basically adapt their cows to higher levels of nitrates by diluting it out and then gradually increasing the concentrations. It seems like we're just adapting those rumen microbes to deal with higher levels of nitrates. But I think you're exactly right. We've got to be super careful in late pregnancy when those fetuses have higher oxygen demands. So in conclusion, Jennifer, how would you advise producers to deal with the risk of nitrate toxicity this year? What are the things that they need to remember to do? So I think there's a couple things that we need to remember. And actually one thing that we we haven't touched on that I think we do need to consider would be nitrate content in the water. So that nitrate in the water is going to be additive with the nitrate concentration in the feed. So, you know, test test your water so you know if that's going to be a contributing factor. And often, you know, often it's not, but, you know, it has potential. So you have, you know, producers here in Saskatchewan have great opportunity in terms of water testing with regional offices. So reach out to somebody, have that water tested. Uh, with respect to forage resources, if you have any concern or doubt, feed test, feed test, feed test, feed test. I mean, spending $50 on a feed test far outweighs the complications that could result if you don't. So it seems like a good a good use of that $50. Know what you have and work to manage it accordingly. That's probably the best advice. If you if you know what your nitrate levels are, you know, you can you can mix it off. Maybe that means you're working with your neighbors to to get some different feed in and something like that. Mix that mix that high nitrate feed with some lower nitrate feed. If you have capacity to mix as a TMR, you reduce your risk even further. If you can feed twice a day versus once a day, again, you reduce that risk. And especially, that's especially true during that adaptation period. So if you can, you know, lengthen that that time out, you're you're at a lower risk. And again, that adaptation is possible over time. There's a place in your winter feeding program for those feeds, but it takes it takes a higher level of management. That's good advice. I think a lot of those management things are easy to talk about, but sometimes hard to implement. Right. Uh, yeah. But it's good to remember the water thing as well. We should perhaps add that if you're sending feed in for feed testing, you'll have to check the box to ask for nitrate <laughs> testing. That's not an automatic yeah. thing that's done on every time you send in a feed test. So it's additional request usually when you're sending in a sample of forage for feed testing. Sure. Thanks, Jennifer. That's great advice. I'll put a link in the show notes to that SaskAg website that talks about uh, nitrate testing and gives some of those levels again so people can people can look at that if they want to and uh, really appreciate you being here today again with me sounds great thanks for the opportunity john that's our show for this week i want to thank each of you for listening to the podcast and please subscribe rate and review the podcast wherever you download them 
thanks again to my guest, Jennifer Hayden from the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture. And thank you as always to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions or comments that would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email me at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. That's bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care till next time.